Hi there, fellow foodies, and happy new year. Can you believe that we're now in season four of the Foodie Pharmacology podcast? It's pretty incredible. Um, we have an amazing lineup of shows and guests planned for you in 2022 as we explore the connections between food and medicine and the human nature interface. Also, this is the year to grab your very own copy of my new book, The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. It's available now on bookstore shelves and can be purchased online as a hardcover, ebook, or even an audiobook. I tell the story of my life's journey in science developing new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. It's a book about adventure, scientific discovery, medicine, and so much more. To learn more about this book um, or to order a copy, head to my website at CassandraQuave.com. Okay, let's jump into the topic for today's show. I am thrilled to have Dr. Jessica Hernandez as our guest this week. She is a transnational indigenous scholar, scientist, and community advocate based in the Pacific Northwest. She has an interdisciplinary academic background ranging from marine sciences to forestry. Her work is grounded in her indigenous cultures and ways of knowing. She advocates for climate, energy, and environmental justice through her scientific and community work and strongly believes that indigenous sciences can heal our indigenous lands. Her current research as a postdoctoral research fellow is funded by the National Science Foundation and is focused on investigating the role that energy plays in addressing climate change impacts from an environmental physics lens. Jessica has a wonderful new book coming out on January 18th, and it is already available for pre-order. The book is called Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jessica. It's, it's great to meet you. Yeah, thank you for having me, and it's nice to meet you as well. Great. So um, looking at your book, it's fabulous. I was so happy to be able to get an um, advanced reading copy. And what I loved about the way that you kind of initiate the book is you start by telling the story of your family's indigenous heritage, and in particular, the story of your father's journey. Um, maybe we could start there. How how has his experiences, how have those experiences really informed your path in science? Yeah, so I think one of the things that um, oftentimes are left out of the climate justice discourse is like the forced displacement that many indigenous peoples, especially south of the border, have to undergo, especially as we continue to face climate change impacts. And I think that given my father's story and how he was forcefully displaced from our native ancestral lands kind of taught me that, you know, despite being displaced, um, our roots are still going to be a part of our, our identity and lineage. And in that case, I think knowing my father's story and being told everything that he kind of related in terms of nature allow me to grow a passion for our natural environment, especially as a displaced indigenous girl during that time. Um, yes, I hope that answers the question. No, absolutely. Well, and I also want to touch on the title for your book, Fresh Banana Leaves. Is there a meaning behind that title? Yes. Um, so the meaning behind the title is that during the Central American Civil War, my father was unfortunately one of the child soldiers that was forced to fight in that war, right? It's a war that 
has been determined to have been a genocide against indigenous peoples by the United Nations. So in that case, there was a, a moment in time when he thought he was going to lose his life when his encampment where they were training the indigenous children to, you know, to be um, equipped to fight in the war. They bombarded that encampment. So he thought he was going to lose his life. But when he um, experienced this, he went to seek refuge under a banana tree, a banana tree that he had built a relationship with, a banana tree where he was um, getting his food source for the encampment, where he would climb the tree, get bananas for his colleagues, or in this case, his comrades. And in that case, um, when he saw the bombs dropping, he went under a banana tree, and it was kind of like a magical kind of experience where he saw the bomb drop on the banana tree but it didn't ignite it was as though like the banana leaves themselves had wrapped the bomb in a way that it wouldn't ignite it and I think that knowing that you know it was thanks to a banana tree that you know I'm just I'm here my father's still here that I wanted to entitle the book Fresh Banana Leaves because it gave us a fresh start. It gave him a fresh start in life, as you know, and eventually led to his displacement. But thanks to that tree, you know, we have a fresh beginning as Indigenous peoples displaced in the United States. That's beautiful. That's really a, a, a beautiful um, story behind behind the name. Um, well. I wanted to get into some of the, the big topics in your book. And as, as you know, this is a, a show about food and pharmacology. But one of the topics that we've discussed at length with a number of our guests is, you know, the fact that human health is inextricably linked to planetary health. And we currently face a climate crisis and, um, you know, indigenous voices and indigenous ways of knowing um when it comes to land management and and the climate crisis, those that knowledge is often, I think, neglected in the discussion. Um, and this is in spite of the fact that indigenous communities are among the most affected by climate devastation. Um, you just don't see indigenous science in the mainstream environmental policy or discourse. Um, can you tell us what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, is there a reason for that? And how do we change that? How do we bring more indigenous perspectives to this discourse? Yeah, so as a climate scientist and somebody who teaches climate science, we I see that often, right, where we focus more on the Western ways of knowing the Western science, even that, you know, the climate scientists, the founders of climate science are European men, not necessarily, you know, it's also something that impacts gender, especially against women. And I think that one of the reasons why indigenous science is not at the forefront is because we have invalidated indigenous knowledge, as you mentioned, ways of knowing through that Western education framework, through that Western science framework that we continue to follow. And I think that given that, you know, for indigenous science is not something that is as quantifiable as like Western sciences where you can get numerical data. That's one of the reasons why scientists say that indigenous science is not as helpful for them because, you know, we haven't been collecting numerical data sets um, for that long of a time. But our data in that sense is more qualitative where we have oral storytellings, where we have prayers, where we have songs that are passing down that knowledge that has been in our community since time immemorial, since pre-colonization. And I think that given that, you know, it's rare or it's unique to find indigenous science, scientific publications written by indigenous scientists, 
we are often asked to cite our sources, right? To cite our knowledge. And obviously our knowledge, the way that we pass it down is not through the Western ways of doing, you know, passing down knowledge, which is like peer review publications, books. So even writing this book, it's a privilege and something that I hold, you know, um, dear to my heart because, you know, I was able to write down some of my indigenous knowledge, some of the indigenous science that has been passed down to me in a book, right? Because oftentimes, and I even mentioned in the book, oftentimes I have been asked to cite even the stories or the indigenous knowledge that I have shared in classrooms, even by professors. And I think that given that indigenous science is also more holistic, it's not as linear, you know, in the scientific method, we had to follow six steps, right? Like, which is make an observation and then eventually draw conclusions indigenous science is more holistic where everything is interconnected ourselves are interconnected with the science that we do and i think that in western sciences especially being trained in the western sciences we're often taught to disconnect ourselves from the research right because we're trying to make facts but it's kind of hard to do that in indigenous science since everything is interconnected even ourselves with our environments that must be really difficult as a as a scientist trained in western science but also having this deep perspective and you know valorization of, of indigenous sciences do you find yourself kind of trying to balance between two worlds of knowledge and yes and i think that um that's one of the reasons why um there was indigenous scholars who created that term two i seen where mm -hmm. we carry a two lens right in one lens it's our Western ways of being trained and educated. And then the other lens is our indigenous lens, right? And it's, it kind of mimics the fact that we all have two eyes as humans. And in that sense, yes, I think it's a balancing act. And sometimes you you have to be careful, right? Because I know that the stereotype of the ecological noble savage where every indigenous person is seen to be in tune with nature, um, have a strong relationship with nature when in reality that's not the case given all the ongoing systems of oppression and colonialism we have faced. There's a lot of indigenous peoples who are reclaiming their relationships with nature. And I think that as an indigenous environmental scientist, I have to balance that, right? Not to amplify the stereotype that all oh, indigenous peoples are in tune with nature or have these strong relationships with nature while being an indigenous person in the environmental discourse. Wow. Well, let's dive in a little bit more into some of the terminology that you that you go into in the book. And one of the terms um, has to do with colonialism, settler colonialism. What role does settler colonialism play in our current societies and how has it shaped our relationship with nature and our expectations of nature? Yeah, so settler colonialism is just a byproduct of colonization. It's like the like the reasons why we have certain political structures that continue to put certain people in power and privilege. And usually, you know, we know that that's the cisgender white male figure in the United States. And I think with settler colonialism, we see how it continues to govern over our natural resources, where as indigenous peoples, we have to constantly ask for permission, even to practice our ceremonies in like par in parts where they have become national parks or urban parks, or these city or governmental 
governmental places. And I think that with settler colonialism, we see the constant neglect of indigenous sovereignty, indigenous rights. We saw that with the Dakota Access Pipeline. We continue to see that with a lot of indigenous-led peaceful resistance movements that are trying to protect our Mother Earth. And I think that one of the ways that settler colonialism has in a way damage our mother earth is through the introduction of capitalism, um, our high dependence on the energy industry that's not on renewable energy, that's on fossil fuels that you know are destroying our planet earth. And I think that through those systems that have been introduced by settler colonialism, in order for us to heal our indigenous lands, we have to start kind of decolonizing, decolonizing some of those layers so that our indigenous peoples can start caretaking and storing our lands so that we can heal them from the damage that colonialism has enacted on them. That's great. Well, what does it mean to, to decolonize? Like, what is, what would that entail? Like we are on a train that is quickly running out of tracks when it comes to the health of our planet. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned from indigenous ways of knowing about how to restore the health of earth? Yeah, I think for me, decolonizing is like a metaphor of peeling onions. And I say that because cellular colonialism is not just one, doesn't have one layer. It has multiple layers that have been introduced into our current society, into our current world. And I think that in order for us to decolonize, um, Western science or even, you know, this society is not going to happen in our lifetime, unfortunately. It's going to take generations of continual advocacy and resistance movements. And I think for me, one of the things that decolonizing will entail is that land back movement. And the land back movement doesn't necessarily mean that indigenous peoples are going to expel non-indigenous peoples from these from this country, but instead it's going to return the land so that indigenous peoples who have maintained that strong relationship with nature or who are reclaiming their relationships with nature will use their knowledge systems, their indigenous science to steward our landscapes, to steward our environments, especially given that, you know, as we speak, as you mentioned, our environments are continuing to be destroyed. We're, you know, we're having animal species go extinct. That also relates to plant species. We're seeing how many plant species are blossoming in different seasons that are not supposed to be like their designated seasons because of climate change. In the Pacific Northwest, we're seeing how the Western red cedar, which is a native um, tree species here, is being destroyed because of like parasites and also climate change impacts. And given that the Western red cedar is an important um, plant species to the Coastal Salish peoples, we're seeing that constantly, right? Where our plant species and our animal species that are really our cultural keystone species as indigenous peoples are being destroyed. So I think that decolonizing will entail, at least part of it will entail to allow indigenous peoples to store their lands and, to, and manage our landscapes so that, um, you know, these systems that colonialism introduced don't continue to destroy them. Yeah, I in, in mentioning this this factor of, you know, cultural keystone species and also the connections to certain lands. I mean, I think one of the challenges and you, you go into this so so beautifully in the book as well is, you know, 
what happens when people are displaced from their lands. I, I live in the southeastern part of the United States where many of the indigenous peoples of this land were forcefully displaced um, out west, you know, especially the, the Muscogee Creek peoples, Cherokee, Choctaw um, nations. Um, and there, there are challenges inherent with you know, when you're moved from a very different landscape to the other, like, how does how does the historic displacement of, of indigenous peoples also influence the 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 ability to kind of reclaim the lands? Yeah, I think that that's that's sometimes hard to try to address. And I say that because, you know, a lot like you mentioned, a lot of indigenous peoples are externally displaced or internally, right, where they're displaced within even the settler borders that make up their country. And I think that there is uh, movements across many indigenous communities where elders are trying to pass down their teachings, but you know, we noticed that during the pandemic, it was indigenous communities that were hit the hardest. And we're seeing that still today beyond our borders, right, where we have that vaccine apartheid, where, you know, not everyone has access to the vaccines, not every country. And when the countries do get some vaccines, it doesn't go to the indigenous peoples. We see that in El Salvador, where my father is from, right, the Maya indigenous Maya people are still advocating to get vaccinated. We see that in Guatemala. Uh, you know, all of our sister and brother um, nation states, right? Because we are all part of the same nation, but we come from different communities because of settler borders. And I think that in that case, there is a need to increase indigenous solidarity and voices and amplify them, especially as we continue to see how climate change is forcefully displacing people. We are seeing how climate refugee numbers are going up. And by 2050, there's there's estimates of millions of people that are going to be displaced because of climate change impacts. And I think that being displaced doesn't necessarily mean that we lose our indigeneity, our indigenous identity. It's just that we had to adapt it to our new environments. We had to adapt it to coexist with the new natural landscape that we are surrounded by. And that's going to take a lot of um, healing as well, because, you know, when we are displaced as people, there is fracture in our in ourselves, right, in our health. We We are traumatized in many cases, especially like if we talk about climate refugees being externally displaced across borders, we're seeing yeah. even how they're treated at the border. We're seeing how, you know, we have a lot of indigenous Maya children in cages where oftentimes the only immigration services are offered in Spanish because it's assumed that everyone who comes from Latin America speaks Spanish while erasing that indigenous peoples don't know how to read or write Spanish. I always relate it back to my father who doesn't even know how to read or, or, or write Spanish to this day because, you know, we are taught our indigenous languages, but yet within many of these displacement discourses, it's, you know, coined that, you know, we all speak Spanish because we all come from Latin America. And I think that displacement has so many layers that, it has embedded in us that there's a lot of healing that we have to do to reclaim sometimes those relationships. Yeah, that's a really great point. I mean, and I think this is another part of, you know, the crisis that we face globally. It's not only the loss of so many species in the midst of the biodiversity crisis, but it's also this linguistic crisis. Um, it's amazing to me that 
it's not as widely recognized that there are so many different languages out there beyond English and Spanish and, you know, the, 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 the romance languages. Um, and, and as, you know, as those languages are lost, there's so much lost around the culture, the cultural knowledge that's held within those languages. Um, and that's just a huge tragedy um, to see that language loss. Yeah. One thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, I think that today among Western scientists, there's a greater recognition um, and desire even to work with indigenous communities. Um, and in the book, you explore this concept as being often rooted in stereotypes of the ecological noble savage what is this stereotype and how does it romanticize or oppress indigenous peoples? And what advice do you have for Western scientists that, that want to work with indigenous communities in a just way? Yeah. So the ecological noble savage stereotypes kind of had its roots cause in the way that we were view, right? Our ancestors were view when, so we had anthropologists, and settlers come and kind of like study us, right? In that sense where we were research subjects. And I think that through that, it was portrayed that all indigenous peoples, we were like savage, we were wild, we were uncivilized, we were kind of, you know, dancing with nature, or it kind of reminds me of the Disney portrayal of Pocahontas, which is inaccurate, but you know, you see her kind of like nature, you know, that whole famous song, Colors of the Wind, where, you know, her hair is being, um, kind of dancing with the wind and there's like um, leaves going around her. And I think that that tends to harm our indigenous communities because, you know, it continues to portray us as research subjects. And I think that for scientists who want to work with indigenous communities, they need to start seeing us also as experts rather than, you know, the research subjects and also kind of giving us that and also seeing us as the researchers right where we and the experts that we have the knowledge to um in a way support our own communities and i think that a way to do that is through you know building collaborations that are not very extractive where you know as scientists we're taught that you know we had to come up with our research question when in reality you know we can collaborate with the community and ask them what kind of research they want us to do that will benefit them at the end of the day. I know that in Western sciences, um, the way that we are, you know, we receive prestige is through publications, but in that case, you know, helping the communities write their own publications. And I know that that takes a long time and a lot of energy because like I have done that and there's a lot of training that has to be done for, you know, indigenous communities to peer pub peer review. Um, write a peer review article. And I think that for scientists, it's not saying don't collaborate with indigenous communities. It's just kind of decolonizing the way that we have been taught to view indigenous communities where they're um, areas of expertise rather than the experts themselves or their research subjects rather than the researchers. And I think that by us deconstructing the way that we are taught indigenous communities should be viewed at because of this stereotype. And while that stereotype may not be mentioned in our courses, you know, when we see and scientists talk about their collaboration with indigenous peoples, they're treating them like areas of expertise rather than experts, rather than knowledge holders. And I think that for us, especially as we continue to work with indigenous communities as scientists, it's important to kind of dismantle 
the way that we even portray indigenous communities to this day. Yeah, that's, those are such great points. I mean, and I think that, that there, there is more awareness around trying to move away from this very colonial kind of extractive um, manner of, of, of conducting research and more emphasis towards ensuring that there's there's benefit sharing and true collaboration with communities. It is, but it's it's not always a, a simple thing um, because we're not necessarily taught how to do this in in Western schools. Um, so I think I think these perspectives are incredibly important, and I love the fact that you're you know also doing this with uh, uh, you know co-authorship. I think that's one really great way to um, really recognize the the incredible input that um, that community members may have on a study. Um, we've done a lot with our work, um, mainly in the Mediterranean and in the Balkans, with also returning knowledge to communities in ways that are accessible to them and in ways that they request. So that's one thing I, I tell my students is, you know, ask the community what they want and um, try to work towards that and, and make sure that the knowledge is being shared back in the most accessible um, and desired ways um, from those studies. Yeah, those are great ways to do that, right? To start doing that, because like, as you mentioned, we haven't, you know, in Western sciences, we are not taught how to work with other communities. And I think that that's because, you know, we tend to put that on a social scientist um, responsibility rather than our own responsibility. Because I think that the way that we're doing Western science and practicing practicing it today is like we have to integrate those social science skills where we have to do community-based participatory research so that we don't end up harming the community more than they have already been harmed. So yeah, thank you for sharing that with your students. Yeah, that's great. Um, so one other thing that you go into in the book is this, this concept that, you know, indigenous peoples face the highest ecological debt um, despite not being responsible for climate change. Can you break that down for us? What do you mean by ecological debt? Yeah, so what I refer to ecological debt is just that level of responsibility that we have to hold when, in fact, we're not the ones who should be held accountable mm -hmm. for the climate change impact. So in that sense, we know which countries are emitting the most greenhouse gases. And in those countries, when we look at the, when we kind of, built our our lands to that country in general, we see that in that country is not the indigenous communities of those nations that are emitting the most greenhouse gas effect um, or greenhouse emissions. Yet, when we see who has the level of responsibility to protect our mother earth and yet, you know, lead these peaceful resistance movements where, you know, oftentimes as indigenous peoples, we are kind of welcome with violence as opposed to, you know, being given a platform to advocate for our indigenous rights and our indigenous lands. We are seeing how um, we have to face adversity. And, you know, even the whole um, fact that many people know that despite making like, I guess, less than 1% of the world's population, we indigenous people steward and caretake for 80% of the biodiversity. And when we look at the context of Latin America, we hold 50% of the world's biodiversity, yet in Latin America, we're seeing how indigenous leaders and, you know, indigenous rights advocates 
are continue to face violence. They disappear. They're murdered. And I think that as a result, Latin America has become the deadliest place for indigenous leaders or um, environmental leaders as well. And I think that when we put that all together, we do have the ecological depth, right? We have that responsibility to protect our mother earth because in part, that's a part of our identity. It's a reason why our cultures are still being sustained despite all the you know, assimilation tactics that we face despite colonization. Yet that ecological depth sometimes makes us you know, make the ultimate sacrifice, which is with our lives because you know we are murdered we do face more violence, especially in Latin America, where, you know, indigenous leaders can be kidnapped in broad daylight. And I think that as a result, that's what I refer to is, you know, the level of responsibility that kind of denies the, you know, the real political actors or the real actors that are contributing to climate change to take that accountability as opposed to, you know, us indigenous peoples. Yeah. I mean, there have been some incredibly horrific stories of reports of indigenous leaders and also healers you know the 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 spiritual and medicinal leaders of of communities as well that as you say have been have disappeared or have been murdered um and their leadership efforts to protect their their ancestral lands from all sorts of different extraction um from gold mining to oil extraction to you know, um, deforestation. And it's, it's, um, it's incredibly brave what, what, what they're doing, but also incredibly scary. um, Because there's so much financial pressure towards these types of, of um, extractive endeavors. Um, And, you know, this doesn't really make national or international discourse often. It's kind of stuff that people that follow this kind of work see, but it's not something you see in the evening news. And I think it needs to be. Um, We need to understand more of what's happening in different parts around the world of how the the sacrifice of different indigenous groups um, to protect these lands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you mentioned, like, unless you follow it, right, you're going to know what's going on with indigenous leaders. And unfortunately, you know, even our media, instead of like uplifting those stories, we're focused, you know, the media focuses on other things that are not as essential, especially for healing our planet from climate change impacts that are, you know, getting worsening every day as we speak. Yeah. Well, one other thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, this, this topic that you also bring up around the importance that indigenous discourses also include the black community. And so how do those, how do those two communities come together? Why, why is that important? Yeah. So for me, I think it's important because oftentimes when we talk about the black community, especially in the United States, we tend to forget about their indigeneity. And I say that because, you know, during slavery, it was indigenous peoples from the continent of Africa or other continents that were kind of stolen, right? That were ripped Mm -hmm. off from their lands and, you know, kind of forced into this um, labor industry that, you know, that founded the United States. And I know that even being in community with a lot of Black relatives, there is this indigeneity that they have lost, right? Because it's in a way they have been forced to put away their indigeneity because, you know, they were ripped off from their families, you know, families were sold separately, 
um, through slavery. And I think that a lot of, you know, the Black community in parts are reclaiming their indigeneity. But when we talk about indigenous communities, we cannot forget that there is anti-Blackness, right? And that's another layer that colonialism introduced in our communities where, you know, um, the, you know, anti-Blackness is very prevalent in among many Indigenous communities. And I say that in the book because I think that in order for us to heal as Indigenous peoples, we have to collectively work with other Indigenous peoples who have been ripped off from their indigeneity, who have lost that indigeneity in the name of colonialism, right? And I think that for the Black community, especially seeing all that violence that they face and all the harm that they continue to endure, um, we cannot kind of ignore them from the indigeneity discourse. And I know that a lot of indigenous scholars do not agree with me, but I think that at the end of the day, you know, we have to keep in mind that many of our black relatives, our brothers and sisters lost their indigeneity because of slavery. And I think that, you know, we see in the continent of Africa, it's not saying that every black person comes from Africa, but it's saying that, you know, in Africa, there's still tribes, there's still clans, and I think that that shows the fact that, you know, many of our Black relatives who were forced into the sla you know, into slavery lost that indigeneity. And how do you reclaim that? We see that when in the Caribbean, right, where the lands where Christopher Columbus first landed, it wasn't the United States. It was the Caribbean. And we see how, as a result, a lot of the Afro-Indigenous peoples of those nations also kind of, you know, their indigeneity was fractured. Yet when it comes to the indigeneity discourse in the United States and we talk about Christopher Columbus, we kind of reconnect him to the United States when in fact the first wave of colonialism was kind of endured by Afro-Indigenous communities. Yeah, that's such, that's such a great point. I think it's so important. It really it highlights the importance of of for scholars and students and the public to have a greater appreciation for the full historical perspective, right? Going back in time to see how how you know how different indigenous peoples have been in, in this case with slavery forcefully displaced and mixed with other indigenous groups, you know, as a way of trying to weaken their ability to communicate um, and subjugate them. Um, it's such an important point, and I think that's often lacking in the discourse around around Indigenous rights. You're absolutely right. Well, I'm just so impressed, Jessica, by your book. Again, it's Fresh Banana Leaves, and you are a postdoc right now. I mean, number one, I'm impressed that so early in your career you, you had such a, a wonderful publication, and this is going to be out um, for the audience. Um, it's, it's now available for pre-order. And it'll be out on January 18th um, of 2022. Um, what's do you have any kind of messages for for people that might be interested in reading this, or to students and scholars that want a deeper appreciation for the indigenous perspective on on climate change? What what would you tell them? Yeah, I think one of the things that I would tell them is that you know when we talk about indigenous peoples or or genocide, we often tell many indigenous peoples to get over it because it was a thing of the past. Yet in my book, genocide, at least the genocide that my indigenous communities face is traced, you know, can be traced to my father's generation, right? Because as I mentioned, 
he endured the Central American Civil War that has been coined or, you know, identified as a genocide by the United Nations. And I think that when we talk about indigenous rights or, you know, human rights in general, oftentimes as people who are marginalized, we're told to get over it because those that's in the past, right? But that past for us is not really, you know, that far along. It's like only in my cases and in my parents' generation is in my grandparents' generation. And I, I think that hopefully that, you know, if you're reading this book, um, obviously, you know, I'm not going to solve climate change in the book or, you know, we're, we're never going to do that. But at least to, if that's the takeaway message is to know that for many indigenous peoples, we cannot just simply get over things because it's something that we endured not that long ago, right? And some of some of us endured it in our in our lifetime, right? Like in the case of my father, if he were speaking, he endured it in his lifetime. And I think that as a fact, a matter of fact, because of that, that intergenerational trauma is passed down to us, right? So I think that, you know, for for my indigenous communities, it's up to my generation to try to heal some of those layers that have been enacted on us because of, you know, that war so that our future generations can continue that healing, right? And I just say that sometimes that healing is not going to happen in our lifetime for our, our entire indigenous communities, but at least, you know, we're planting those seeds that will blossom into flowers of change, into flowers of healing, that will hopefully push us in a better direction. So that's that would be my overall message if people want to take one thing away from the book. That's fabulous. I like that imagery of of seeds for change and a and a brighter future. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'm really excited to finish your book as well. <laughs> on the plane ride back home. So thank you for Wonderful. writing that. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, uh, recorded remotely. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. Um, this is our last, or our, excuse me, this is our first episode of season four, the 2022 um, season. I want to thank our producers to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for doing an excellent job in producing this show. And again, thank you to our listeners for sticking with us and joining us on this exciting new season. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.